welcome to the Everyday Neuro podcast series. I'm your host, Dr. Janine Cooper, and I'm aiming to provide you with knowledge and inspiration into understanding the fascinating world of the human brain. I'd like to start today's episode by asking you, do you use apps? If you do, how many do you use and which ones do you use the most? Some of you may not know life without apps, but for those of you that do, are you glad we now have smart technology that enables the use of apps? For most people, the use of apps is second nature, especially if you own a smartphone. And according to the website appannie.com, apps are becoming increasingly integral to users' lives as they access almost 40 a month and spend up to three hours a day in apps. Now, does this surprise you? Because I must admit, it did surprise me a little bit. I didn't realize it may be as many as 40. And um, when you start to add up the amount of hours, three hours is quite a lot. But for some of you, this might actually seem not a lot at all. For me, I benefit from apps that help with my navigation, as quite frankly, my spatial awareness is really terrible. I also use um, a fitness app. I might add very haphazardly uh, to try and record my attempts at exercise. For many others, using the inbuilt reminder apps and calendars on smartphones and tablets has really become a much needed part of life, with some people saying it's actually a necessity to be able for them to organize their personal and work schedules. Photo editing tools used in combination with social media have also become increasingly popular. Recently, apps have become the centre of debate regarding their benefit to society, especially when they're being used by younger, impressionable people such as children and teenagers. I wrote an article for The Conversation called Growing Up in the Age of Apps Doesn't Have to Be All That Bad, and I received mixed reviews to it, even though I was attempting to give quite a balanced view from different people's viewpoints, so much so that I was invited to speak on radio about this, as many people feel very passionately about this topic. If you would like to read the article or listen to the radio interview, then please check out the past projects page of the Everyday Neuro website, www.everydayneuro.com.au forward slash past hyphen projects. Please do let me know your thoughts and you can drop me an email with them if you'd like. But what I'd like to ask you now is, what if the app that you're using is truly life-changing and enables you to improve your abilities and, in addition, your independence and well-being to a point where your life is much, much better than it would be without the use of that app? Well, that is the focus of today's podcast, how smartphone and tablet technology mainly apps, in recent years has and is continuing to be used as a way of developing and providing support and interventions for children, adolescents and adults living with a variety of symptoms related to brain damage. As you may already know from listening to episode 8, How Good Is Your Memory About You? This topic is really close to my heart from working with children and adolescents that live with chronic memory issues and in rare cases, developmental amnesia due to brain damage. By working with these people directly, I have observed how heavily reliant they are on strategies to cope with their impaired episodic and autobiographical memory. 
Without support, for many, these issues are physically and emotionally draining, as well as frustrating. And in some cases, children and adolescents with chronic memory impairment can develop mental health issues such as anxiety and depression, which become more and more prevalent as they get older and start to try and attempt to lead a more independent life. From working closely with these children and teenagers and by listening to their thoughts about their life and their hopes for the future, it became apparent that there was a lack of support or a tool that could be used and was suitable as well as truly enjoyable for use by younger people. Although other devices and tools have been developed to support serious chronic memory issues, at the time, and we're talking 2008 to 2010, these had been specifically developed for use by adults and older people. Thus, this need for a child and adolescent-friendly intervention led me to develop an idea or a concept for a tool that would provide support for children and teens with autobiographical memory issues. When I travelled from London to Melbourne in 2010, I realised that the best way to do this was to have an intervention that could deliver reminders and provide autobiographical information, almost like a virtual hippocampus, on something that children and teenagers love to use by someone or something that they could relate to. The answer, I believed, was to use smartphones and tablets and to deliver information via a virtual peer. And I'll tell you a bit more about that later in the podcast. In 2010, the idea of using smartphones or a virtual peer was highly innovative in the world of brain rehab research, and it really tapped into novel concepts. But Thanks to some like-minded software developers and psychologists at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute based in Melbourne, in 2011, we began the journey to create the app that I hoped could truly attempt to provide the much-needed support for younger people living with impaired memory functions in a manner that they would identify with and want to use because they enjoyed using it. Of course, before anything could happen, the difficult task of getting grant money began. And let me tell you, this is not easy to do. But fortunately, several funding bodies and philanthropic award providers did see the potential in the project. And with very limited grant money, we were able to trial the app on a smartphone. The person who volunteered to use the app as part of an intervention to support memory and well-being was a wonderful 17-year-old who was living with chronic memory issues, and we're going to refer to them as SE. SE has a history of episodic loss of consciousness that first occurred when she was two years old and gradually increased in number and duration. The main symptoms experienced prior to the loss of consciousness were headaches, blurred vision and also dizziness. Since the age of 11, Essie experienced three episodes of loss of consciousness, with the longest lasting just short of an hour. Essie has a complex medical history, including hypoxia, which we discussed in relation to the developmental amnesic cases in the last podcast. And it's a condition where the brain does not receive enough oxygen in the blood, leaving regions such as the hippocampus vulnerable to damage. And again, some of you from listening to the earlier podcast will know that the hippocampus is an area that is considered to be vital for memory. At the time of participating with the app, Essie was healthy and having occasional headaches. 
Essie's main reason for taking part in the intervention study was to try and find a way to limit her need for note-taking, which she used to remember future events, such as a doctor's appointment or a school assignment, and also to be able to reduce her reliance on her boyfriend, who she needed to tell her about things she'd done in the past, whether it be a day earlier, a few weeks ago, or a date really remotely in the past from maybe a year or two years ago. Essie was given the appropriate training and as she had a similar smartphone, she said she found it really easy to use and navigate the memory support app. So what did we find? Well, before I give you a brief summary of the results, if you would like more information, then a link to this article is available in the show notes. So please go to www.everydayneuro.com.au forward slash podcasts, locate episode nine, and then simply click on the show notes button. Alternatively, if you're interested in learning more about chronic memory issues in childhood and adolescence, as well as the virtual peer app study, then you can listen to the interview I gave on the Triple R radio show, Einstein A Go-Go. So the study showed that there was a positive effect on everyday functioning and the well-being of SE by using the virtual reality peer to deliver memory support. So what do I mean by a virtual reality peer? Well, basically, it was a little character that could speak to SE and engaged in general conversation. The character was able to provide information from SE's past and also to engage in questions regarding her future activities. So what does it actually mean for SE when we say that this virtual reality peer on the app was actually positive for her everyday functioning and well-being. Well, Essie was able to report more events with the aid of the app, and we also observed an increase in the number of autobiographical events that she mentioned at the end of the day compared to when she was not using the app. These events were verified by her boyfriend and suggested that she was benefiting from using the app. In regards to her well-being, it's important to understand how she was feeling immediately before she took part in the study. Prior to starting the intervention and using the app, Essie was suffering from what we call elevated mood symptoms and she had anxiety and low levels of health-related quality of life. In contrast, on completion of the intervention, there appeared to be a positive change from using the app, with all the levels returning to normal. Essie reported improvements in her ability to relax, her knowledge of the day's events, and also to be able to make plans with family and friends. What's important to know is that although the app was designed as a memory aid, by using a virtual peer to deliver the information via regular chat sessions, we were also able to support Essie's mental health and hence improve her perceived levels of well-being and her ability to function effectively. As you know, I'm passionate about well-being and I think that for many of us, we can relate to when our performance is hindered when we're not feeling at our best, whether we're feeling anxious or stressed. So in the same way, by supporting Essie's memory abilities using the virtual peer, we seem to have been able to also improve her well-being and the two work in combination to give her a better level of productivity and a feeling of being able to cope. As you can imagine, we were all delighted for Essie and also with the overall results. 
We believe that the contributing factor to Essie's adoption of the support app seemed to be in its ability to fit with her personalised needs and also her daily living activities. This is an area that really does require more focus because there are many people living with cognitive issues, such as memory impairment, that need to be taught how to effectively use an app before they can actually potentially benefit from it. Training to be able to use an app is therefore hugely important and one research study that is currently investigating this is being conducted by Diana Ramirez and colleagues at Monash University in Victoria. The study called Improving Smartphone Use After Stroke aims to compare different ways to teach the use of memory apps to stroke survivors and also to determine which one is more effective. Diane and the team train participants to use one specific app under one of three conditions and then they check whether learn skills are maintained and generalised to other apps. For more information about this study, please see the link to the flyer provided by Diana in the show notes. This study therefore has the potential to discover which apps are best for promoting the transference of learnt skills. So what do I mean by the term transference? Well, if we look at brain training apps, and there are many, most suggest that they can improve your cognitive skills, such as attention and memory. However, on closer inspection, they may improve your abilities on the tasks that are part of the training app. But when it comes to the tasks outside of that in the real world, there is often no effect of transfer of this improvement. Hence, you may have amazing scores of attention on a task on the brain training app, but there will not be a noticeable change in your ability to attend to more information, for example, in a meeting or a family get together. I think the lack of transference effect is beautifully discussed in a letter featured in the journal Nature by Adrian Owen and colleagues. I've included this information for you in the show notes. The take-home message is that for training to be deemed effective, it needs to transfer to other tasks that tap into that particular cognitive ability that are out with the intervention app or training program or game. So that leads me to ask the question, which apps and games are beneficial and supported by what we call empirical evidence, otherwise known as information that is verifiable by observation or experimentation, rather than information that is provided by the developer? Well, you can refer to a great review written in 2014 and published online in the Psychiatric Times by Larry Brook, PhD, called Science or Sales, the Evidence and Application of Brain Training Games. And again, I've provided a link, you guessed it, in the show notes. Although we have to be mindful about the suitability of apps for supporting people living with brain-related impairment, The rapid increase in their development and use is testament to how popular they are becoming in a rehabilitation setting. I have a number of what I think are really great links available for you to view in the show notes, especially if you are currently living, caring or working with brain injury. 
One of the links is a database of phone apps and they have been reviewed as part of a project which it's quite a long title is called Implementing and Evaluating Smartphone Applications Technology Across the New South Wales Brain Injury Rehabilitation Programme. That's a bit of a mouthful, that one. But this is ideal if you are working with people with a brain injury. Basically, you select the type of phone you have, so whether it's Android or Apple, and then you choose from 10 use categories that include carer and also pediatric. There are currently 256 apps in the database. And again, you can click on the link to investigate this more if it may be of interest to you. Another great link is brainline.org. As it states on the website, and I'm going to quote this, the Brainline team sorted through many resources to compile the list of apps for mobile devices for people with brain injury, their families and caregivers. Some of these apps have proven to be especially helpful for people with brain injury. The phone can be used to remind you of an upcoming appointment or to take medication, or it can be used like a traditional paper notebook to keep all your addresses, telephone numbers, calendar items, lists and ideas. Please note that Brainline does not endorse these or any specific products, but it might be that this is useful for you or someone you know. Then once again, just take a look at the link and see how you go. The final link that I have provided is to a clearly organized toolkit that has been created for use by occupational therapists or OTs. However, having browsed this, it seems to me that there are many links that are really useful regardless of your occupation. And the sections range from apps that can be used to assist with activities of daily living through to those supporting education in children. One of the sections I particularly like is called App Review Apps. And I think it's really good for keeping us aware that although an app may have been developed for a particular use, it does not necessarily meet the requirements of the users. If you remember the study we did with SE, we believe that one of the most fundamental reasons why the virtual reality app was successful was that it was personalized to SE's abilities, her interests and her lifestyle. And more importantly, Importantly, she really enjoyed using it. Returning to the OT toolkit, one link that I found particularly interesting in the app review section is named Autism Apps. Although I'm not personally endorsing this, the Autism Apps is, and I quote from the webpage, a comprehensive list of apps that are being used with and by people diagnosed with autism, Down syndrome and other special needs. It also includes links to any available information that can be found for each app. The apps are also separated into over 30 categories and the descriptions are all searchable so any type of app is easy to find and download. If we think about the millions of apps that are currently available, the job of searching through the numerous options is not only time-consuming, but also frustrating, as many apps, as we've discussed, sound ideal in their description, but have not been designed to specifically meet the user's needs or abilities. Therefore, the review of apps, such as those noted in the toolkit, can actually help people save time and provide suitable support. So although I have just scratched the surface of this topic, I really hope that I have now given you a little bit more information and also some helpful links from this episode about the use of apps to support symptoms related to brain damage. 
I'll finish by saying that when designed with the user in mind, apps do offer support in a manner that can fit in with everyday life. If you imagine that you have symptoms that reduce your ability to be independent, then this may be a step closer to enabling that ability and enhancing your well-being. However, with all things, they should be used in accordance with a balanced lifestyle. So thanks again for joining me. And as always, please take really good care of that wonderful brain of yours. And I hope you can join me again for another episode of the Everyday Neuro Podcast Series. Take care.